0: Hey everyone, Brian Weber here. Thanks for listening. We have a great episode in store for you today. Before that, I need to ask you for a small favor that won't cost anything but a minute of your time, and it would mean the world to this show and our guests. Somehow, this show about the founders of the modern cannabis industry is not showing up when searching for cannabis or entrepreneur in many of the podcast platforms. That's obviously a big problem for a show about cannabis entrepreneurs. One of the things we can do to solve that is with reviews. Giving just one minute of your time to submit a review of this show, using the words cannabis and entrepreneur in it will help us get found so we can keep sharing these amazing founders journeys. For new listeners, I really hope you consider this after enjoying this show. For our continuing listeners, if you can do this right now, I'd greatly appreciate it. Go ahead, hit pause. I'll wait right here. Thank you.
1: I was sitting at the table, they were having lunch, and they were talking about how people were you know, paying for everything with bags of cash. And I just said, you know, being completely obtuse <laughs> to the situation, I was like, why are you doing that? And they're like, and they all kind of looked at me like I was, you know, I had three heads. And they were like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, why are you paying for things in literally bags of cash? And I'm like, you know, they're like, well, you can't get the money into the banking system. And I went, what? And then I started, to, I'm like, well, how do you pay for things? You're like, well, everything's cash. And then all the lights went off in my head.
0: Welcome to Lit Up, A Founder's Journey. A show about the entrepreneurial pioneers of the modern cannabis industry and the organizations they're building. Each episode features the founder themselves sharing their life's journey that inspired the entrepreneur within to create the most impactful ideas in modern cannabis. Builders are masters at process. They see the big picture. They deconstruct. They learn. They rebuild it better. From his childhood playing with Legos to building service businesses as a young adult and a huge pivot to Wall Street building deals... Christopher Galvin loves to learn and build. A very successful career earned him an early retirement in Scottsdale at only 42. It wasn't long before Christopher got the urge to build again. He wanted to solve a big problem, actual bags of cash. That was a symptom of the big problem facing legal cannabis businesses, regulators, and financial institutions. They themselves weren't sure of the rules and what solution needed to be. Christopher found his big problem to solve. He knew to lean in, to learn processes, to learn everyone's needs, to ask better questions, to get better answers. That gave him and his team the foresight to anticipate and become a thought leader. Hyper was the company they built to solve those problems and is now an industry leader in cannabis compliance and payments. Please enjoy the founder's journey of Hyper founder and CEO, Christopher Gavin. Just a quick note before we begin. As 2020 goes, this is a minor issue, but you may notice some audio artifacts in the background. There was an issue with one of the mics that caused this. We did our best to clean it up. Christopher's story is so compelling. It'll hopefully blend into the background for you too. Thanks for listening. Enjoy.
1: We are designed specifically to address high risk payment in banking markets. So we're a software Payments company. If you look at us as a, a, def, a definition to put us in a box, it's very difficult because we operate in the software in the business, we operate in the compliance business, and we operate in the payments business. All of our products are specifically designed to address uh, the high risk category specific, uh, is, as a whole. So, and what we found is that cannabis was the most high risk category. It's a, still a federally illegal activity. And it wasn't about payments, it was about compliance and banking. So if we could solve the compliance and banking problem, uh, we could facilitate uh, a strong, fundamentally sound and sustainable payments program for the most high-risk industry um, in, in the space or any space, frankly, at this point. And, and that uh, that's really how Hyper was born.
0: And, and you guys are on fire. You guys are getting a ton of press and Forbes and Benzinga and, and all over the place. And you guys are just growing so rapidly right now. I really wanted to get you on the show and, and hear a founder's journey because you don't wake up and you're like, I really want to get into the compliance space. That sounds, that sounds <laughs> super, super interesting. I really want to... Yeah, yeah, cannabis and compliance. This sounds. This is where my future is going to be. And there's a journey that we all come through to get there. And a lot of those beliefs and a lot of those fundamentals start from from when we were kids. So I want to roll back before we get into it. And I have so many questions for for you on what you guys do. Um, but let's start with all the founders' journeys we do and talk about your your parents and and where you grew up and and what that was like.
1: Yeah, I, I uh, was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. I'm the baby of five children: I, three boys and two girls. Um,
0: and you were Irish,
1: the German, and Catholic. Yes, I was the youngest. Okay, uh, by seven years. Um, we, uh, you know, we were grew up like pretty much everybody. You know, we lived in a great neighborhood, and I played all day in the summer and. Went to Catholic grade school and played sports. I played everything, and I love sports. Um,
0: What's your, are you? Uh, were you a baseball kid?
1: Baseball, football. Yeah, yeah, those were my two favorite. I played basketball, wrestled, ran track, um, but uh, baseball and football are my favorite.
0: What did your um? What did your parents do for a living?
1: My father was a pipe fitter, and my mother was a, was a stay at home mom.
0: Gotcha okay so she was that she was the homemaker and was your dad did he run his own business no
1: no he uh he was a pipe fitter he worked for someone my mother i get my entrepreneurial spirit my strength from my mom okay Uh, my mom is a brilliant brilliant woman and strongest person i've ever met in my life uh five kids right yeah, she's, she's our rock. She's always been our rock. Um, my mom and dad were divorced when I was four, so mm-hmm. she, uh, she, she's, she's an extraordinary woman.
0: Wow, so she raised all five of you guys.
1: Well, my sisters were out of the house, and my
0: brothers were a little older. That's right. You said you were seven years younger, right? Yeah,
1: so my brother Tim was 11. I was four, So you know, but she definitely brought the boys up. Wow.
0: Wow, you owe a lot to her, I guess, for that. I owe her everything. That's that's awesome. Um, so you're in sports. That's a big focus of, of your youth. Um, what did you focus on, you know, during high school? And where'd you go off to university at?
1: I didn't go to university. I started my first company when I was 18 years old.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, so you had that entrepreneurial bug. Yeah, I,
1: I've always loved business. Um, you know, I was reading the Wall Street Journal when I was 16 years old. So business and finance were always things that were of interest to me.
0: What, um, what perked some of that interest right there? And you said your mom was a, a nurturing element for that as well, but like what were um, some of the influences that you had as a, as a kid then?
1: I, I um, I've, I've always had, I've liked numbers okay. and I, I like to put things together. I like to build things. So you know, my, I had a, a, you know, I was a Lego kid, so I would literally build everything. So I spent a lot of time building things and that's kind of how my mind works. I'm I'm a Finops guy. So I understand the financial side of things, but then I like to know how the nut goes on the bolt. You no, know, as I always tell my team, you know, in any business and any opportunity, it's you know what goes in, what happens in the middle and what comes out is gonna determine whether or not you're successful or not successful. So understanding the mechanics of things are has always been, you know, a uh, uh, of interest to me, but I've always had interesting vision. I've always seen the world a bit differently than most people. I'm a contrarian by nature. So I like to solve problems. And uh, that's really what drove me to start my own company, my
0: first company when I was 18. Interesting how, uh, how Legos is a foundation for teaching you how to...
1: It really was. I mean, it taught me problem solving and it taught me how to be creative and really opened up a lot of things for me. My little guy, I have a seven year old son. He's exactly the same
0: one. Just, just right into Legos as well. Here's my, here's my old set. Yeah, I have, uh, I have suitcases of that stuff at home, so I could, I could definitely relate. What was that first job at, at 18 then? So you grad, I'm assuming you graduate high school or in it, and you're like. Yeah, no, I, what, I started working when I
1: was 12. Uh, so I was carrying golf bags. I was a caddy, uh, and then became an honor caddy. And then um, I started a company called Mr. Vacuum Cleaner in 1984, May 1st, 1984. Uh, Excuse me, May 1st, 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 1985. You
0: remember the day very clearly, don't you?
1: Well, I graduated from high school when I was 17, and uh, I turned 18 that summer. And I was still 18 when I started the company in 85. Uh, And I started with my brother, Tim. And uh, we started out sales, service, and parts of vacuum cleaners. And we built that into three locations and had a pretty successful run with that. And uh, then I started another company called Unique Home Systems, which we were the largest, we became the largest central vacuum company in probably the entire Midwest. Uh, And in the process of that, I got into
0: home theater and electronics. Okay. And so I'm seeing can, a, I'm seeing a progression a little bit more and more, more. Yeah. The I home. just,
1: you know, my mind keeps going. So, you know, we were fortunate to uh, build some pretty successful companies and That's I sold, uh, I, I had a securities a home security company that I sold um, when I was 20, was when I was 24. Okay. And uh, did, did pretty well on that. And then I um, actually you know, and I, at that point, went to New York and taught myself how to become an investment banker.
0: Wow. Okay. So I want to unpack a little bit of that. So obviously, you're seeing some opportunities come across along the way. Like For an 18-year-old to be like, I want to get into vacuum cleaners doesn't seem like that sexy drive of, of, of something to jump into. What was the opportunity that you saw?
1: It was a service industry. And Look, I I didn't have a specific agenda. My brother, Jack, was was the regional manager for Eureka Vacuums at the time. Vacuum stores were hot, and there was a need for a good service operation for janitorial businesses and retail. So we, you know, I learned how to fix vacuums. I drove to Dayton, Ohio every day when when I graduated from high school at 5.30 in the morning to learn how to fix them. And I spent the entire summer... Uh, I didn't get paid a dime, but I got a great education. So
0: you got paid different ways in the skill I
1: got a great education, so that we just we started the business, and I used to literally go around to all the malls and with my little vacuum stickers and put them on all the vacuums and. We built a a nice business.
0: Oh, like for service, please call this number. And that was...
1: uh, I literally would walk up and down the malls, all of them, uh, all the schools. I mean, I literally got in my car and just cold called everybody Wow. uh, and built a really nice service business. And then ultimately built a really nice retail sales business and became a a large wholesaler for janitorial supplies and, and, uh, parts. and that was
0: kind of a, an evolution of that of like, Hey, we're servicing this one little sector of this let's evolve. And, and uh, for the umbrella,
1: well, look, it's always been my experience that business is an ever evolving. You know, as, I, it, it, look, it, the minute you stop evolving as a company, you die, the minute yeah. you stop opening yourself to different ideals and learning you know, and seeing what other people are doing wrong funded, frankly, is you know, why are they doing it so badly? <laughs> um, that we are able to do it so well. So, you know, we have, you know, that's kind of always been where I live is, you know, I, I look for the disruption and what people are doing badly and doing wrong and try to find a way to do it better and more efficiently and solve the problem.
0: What were some of those opportunities that you saw going into, you know, you said you got into the uh, the home theater, you know, systems at that, that, and that was probably right around the mid nineties. Early nineties. Early nineties.
1: Like 1988, probably 1989.
0: Um, tech is really like the tech that we know, like home tech is. is
1: doesn't exist. Doesn't I really mean, it was, it was, then. it was, as you know, it was, it was more, much more like the Flintstones than it was like the Jetsons. Let's put it that way. But it was all, you know, it was all hardwired. And, you know, it's, we, I, I saw, I saw that home entertainment was going to be a, a future, um, and I basically went all in on that and we des- I developed a product that was a one stop shop where we would really pre wire your house, uh, rough in your central vacuum. Uh, we'd pre wire your house for security, intercom and sound system and your central vacuum We created a one stop shop. No one was able to compete with us. We controlled 60% of the new construction market in. Uh, Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana, so wow. we became we were rather prolific at that so and, your growth strategy um, is that
0: was reach out to builders as you 're building out new construction hey we 'll get this in here um,
1: well more importantly was how do you how do we eliminate steps in your process as a builder right so as opposed to dealing with four vendors, you were dealing with one vendor who could provide four services, so we, made, we, we, created, we created economies of scale and efficiency and we created, created, put price compression into the market by bringing down the price because we were able to do four things in the house with the same team as opposed to one so we changed the pricing model we brought price compression in and we brought economies of scale and efficiencies to that model and that was really my first you know foray into understanding how to create disruption in a category and that's really what taught me about disruption frankly
0: that's your mba right there right (laughs) <laughs> pretty much,
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much.
0: As these things evolve, experience is is so valuable. So we're late '80s, early '90s at this time frame. You have this growing business in three different states. Are you still working with your brother as a partner on this one? I am. I okay. Am, yeah. um, where does your life evolve from from there?
1: I. Uh, this is going to sound really pretty silly, but the movie Wall Street um, changed my life in a way that. I can't even tell you how it changed my life. I, you know, I, I, I was, well, it just, I saw the world that I wanted. You know, I didn't even know what an investment banker was. I just know one to be one.
0: What was it about that appealed to you? What were some of those core things? Of- the
1: strategy of it. I just yeah. loved the, how, I mean, the, the deceit in the movie is, you know, it's, 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 it's Hollywood. But I, I started to, 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 to research it and i started to understand it a little bit more and it was all about strategy and to me you know i say this to my team all the time you know we're playing chess they're playing checkers so it's about it's about playing three-dimensional chess in your head and and the moves and the, and the strategy you're going to have as you're doing things is going to determine the success or failure of any particular enterprise so i just loved i love the fact that i could get involved with so many different kinds of companies Mm-hmm. and not be isolated and doing just the thing I was doing
0: because you I mean you had a very successful business but you were in that one vertical and if there was a and it was fun new home started not producing your whole business could uh could 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 tank
1: yeah and it just it, it didn't uh, it didn't well I didn't have a passion for it any longer so I basically you know we sold a big package of our assets and I did okay and uh, went to New York and kind of uh, taught myself finance
0: so you're just like this is a huge pivot for you so you packed oh, it up a, like, <laughs> it
1: was like it was like being dropped out of an airplane onto mars and you know i didn't speak the language i didn't know anybody and it was just it was the most exciting time in my life because i was learning things that i never thought i was ever going to learn I, I just started trying to figure out how the game was played you know i really out i started going to pitches so in new york back then they would have these irpr companies investor relations public relations companies that would hold forums and they would bring you know a dozen or two dozen companies up and they would pitch uh their companies and then there would be be bankers and fund managers and this is before hedge funds were as pervasive as they became
0: yeah. So and, this is like an early version of Shark Tank is like, here's your pitch. Nick.
1: Well, it's, 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 yeah, but you've got a room and what they're doing, these are all public companies. So, you know, they're micro cap, small cap, and NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange companies. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to get people to be in, to, interested in buying their stock. So yeah, they're looking for stakeholders and they're looking for, to increase the value of their stock by presenting their wares to, you know, the market, the industry.
0: Understood now.
1: Let's understand this was 92. So we didn't have any of the electronic mediums that we have now. So, you know, it was still very interpersonal. And it was still much a cattle call. So I, I started to go to all those. And I just started listening. <laughs>
0: okay. And they were open, they were open to the, the Yeah, public. open
1: forums. Well, you had to pay, you know, a fee to get in. And, I mean, I had made some money, so it wasn't as if I was, you know, destitute by any stretch. Yeah. But, um, and I just started to try to learn it. Gotcha. And I taught myself.
0: So you were living in New York, like, where'd you set up shop? Like, did you find a cheap place to live or? Yeah,
1: I was, I found a, I found a, a nice place in Chelsea and.
0: Gotcha. You know, it was,
1: okay. It was, uh, it was great. You know, what was I, the, I, um,
0: were you working then or did you have the. I, no, I,
1: I was, no, I was.
0: You're just, you're like, that's your, that's your education. My, right?
1: my work learning. was, I was going to learn how to do this. Okay. And I gave myself a year and a budget and said, you know, if I can. I can make it here a year and I can turn this, this, what I have into more then I'll, uh, I can do this. And that's so a good,
0: that's the best investment you could ever make is uh, it was, but I
1: got really close to losing it all. So it was, uh, <laughs> I was, I was on the precipice of, uh, being broke. Cause I was making a lot of bad decisions. Cause I was, I just, I was being, I wasn't being patient.
0: Okay. So like but, your anxiousness to because you like always have popped from one thing to another to another, and it was this evolution. Yeah. And was it hard for you to pause and switch to education mode that year?
1: Yeah, because you have to really humble yourself. And you know, I came from a place where I was a pretty successful you know, business guy at a young age, and I had to change my thought process, and I had to humble myself a lot <laughs> yeah. and remove the arrogance um, and just shut up and listen. And it took me a minute to figure that out. And then I met some interesting people and I had a couple of guys show me a few things and, and I started to get it. And then once I got it, I got it. Gotcha. And,
0: uh, That's a know, very valuable lesson to learn. Even, you know, at 24, still a very young age.
1: And it was hard. It was very, it was hard to do. It was very humbling and very, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was infuriating in some ways because, you know, you think you're really smart and then you go and you realize you don't know anything. <laughs> and then it's uh, like, okay, wait, a minute, I don't know anything. I need to shut up and just listen here.
0: The, that lesson, I'm sure, has saved you, you know, a hundred or made you a hundred x what you may have lost in in that year, uh, if, if probably not more. So
1: <laughs> it certainly, it certainly was an interesting ride, but it turned out okay.
0: When did things pivot for you at at that point? So you said you, I mean, if you want to share some some of those stories, but like you were there for about a year and you know learning. <laughs> Um, when did things start to, to change for you? I, uh, you
1: know, I, I kind of just started running my own money. So okay. I was doing my own deals and then I was, I started, I figured out that, uh, the reverse merger business was going to be an interesting business. Okay. And, uh, that was, I was on the, I was in the city for probably three years and I'd done. Okay. Okay. Uh, I was, uh, I was making more than I was losing. Let's put it that way. But, um,
0: that sounds okay.
1: Yeah. But I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't setting any records, but I was doing okay. And, um, but I, you know, I was looking for the thing that was going to really be my, this my driving force and what I was really going to become really good at. And mm-hmm. excuse me, it became capital markets. It became financing into public companies and taking companies public. So, okay. I started to build, uh, form 10 shells and I built quite a few of those and, uh, did very well in that business. And then, um, I, uh got involved with some other different, I was just, I was I was involved with a lot of companies. I can see you have
0: a lot of lot of different fingers and different, different people Yeah,
1: I was in a lot, I was in a lot of stuff. So I was doing a lot of things. I wasn't doing any one thing, but you know, I was, I was having a blast. I know I was, I was really enjoying myself.
0: Were you on your own through this time? Were you getting new partners in this or you you on your own? I was
1: on my own. I was running my own money and I, you know, I was doing deals with people, but I, I didn't really want partners. Um, yeah, you know, we. I would partner with people on specific trades or transactions, mm-hmm. and we would put money to you know put capital together. But uh, you know, I didn't really need partners at the time. I mean, I didn't. I knew what I wanted to do, and I knew how to do it. So you know, I had a lot of resources and people around me that I used for a lot of things, and maybe they would be considered partners, but yeah. they weren't equity partners in the companies that I owned or ran. So. Um, I had a lot of great people around me. A great, you know, a great, a great, a great team of people around me that I did used on a consistent basis for. Me. And that
0: was largely driven about you just showing up and being persistent. And
1: I, I was determined to do this. So I, uh, you know. Once I lock in on something, there's not much that's going to change my mind.
0: Gotcha. How did you start getting acceptance within that community of like just learning how to do the deals, learning how to let the lingo, learning how to network, showing that you're serious?
1: The only way you get accepted in the financial markets is to make money.
0: Okay.
1: It's not friends. You're not making friends there. Yeah. Um, You have acquaintances, you have people you like, you have drinks and drink and dinner with, but (laughs) you know, it, it. as a, as a friend of mine, as a guy that I know once told me, "Because goes, it's not how much I make, it's how much did you lose? <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, that's, that was the, the nature of the business. And it was a highly competitive world. Um, you never told anybody what you were doing or what you were thinking because mm-hmm. the minute you did, they were started doing it and thinking it. So, And if, the, if you were making money at it, they were going to try to make money at it and try to take whatever you were doing away from you. So it wasn't personal. never took it that way it was just it was a highly competitive world and either you could play there or you couldn't and it wasn't for the faint of heart that's for
0: sure you so you learned during that time to keep your 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 cards pretty close um well
1: you, you look you learned that i what i learned most importantly is that i think differently than most people and when you start telling people what you're thinking and and if, if they hadn't thought of it and what I learned is there was a lot of stuff that I was doing that no one had thought about yet mm-hmm. so I was developing you know new instruments new financial instruments new trading you know ways to do things and I was doing it my, with my own my own asset classes and the things that I had in front of me I, I just wasn't sharing it with anyone else and it was successful and people were trying to kind of figure out how I was doing it and so I made the mistake one time of telling someone how I was doing it. And then 10 minutes later, they were doing it. Oh, so, man. Okay. Uh, that, that was a le- it's a lesson. It's okay. You know, it's all right. It's, I've learned more about the things I've done wrong than the things I've done right. So, mm-hmm.
0: so you're there for about three years now. Learned some good lessons, made some inroads, mm-hmm. making some money, but not great killer, you know, money. What is that next chapter free then you look like? And you're probably around 95 ish at at that time. Yeah, 95,
1: 96. Um, I just, I was ready to start building stuff. Okay. I wanted to build some companies and and, um, I understood the capital markets. It it wasn't a life for me that I was interested in being in forever. Um, Mm -hmm. I I just, I needed to know it and I learned it.
0: so this was I that Lego it. block for you. I got to realize how businesses well, are structured. I needed the
1: foundational elements of how money works because if you don't understand how money works and you don't understand how capital markets work, you're walking. You know, you're bringing a butter knife into a machine gun fight. So mm-hmm. I mean, I know the metaphor is is ridiculous, but it's true. And you're sitting across the table from people like me who know exactly the mechanics of a transaction, and I know where you live. I know what you're doing. I know what your objectives are. And I'm, and I know the fastest, most efficient way for me to make money on you. Mm-hmm. And if you don't understand that, if then, you're not the smartest
0: person in the room,
1: well, it's not even being the smartest person in the room. It's, it's being the most, most well-informed person in the room. There are lots of people way smarter than me. It was just that I was very well-informed on whatever topic it was that I was working on. Okay. And I tried to keep myself very well informed. So it's it's not about being the smartest person in the room because that's a ridiculous thought. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about being more well-informed and having more information about the specific thing you're trying to do than the person you're sitting across from. And I've sat across from people who are a hell of a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> yeah. But I knew more about a specific topic than they did, which, which gave me the advantage.
0: Gave you leverage on that one. So you want to start... You have learned a lot in your three years in in New York. And it was about four. It was about four, about four by years. the time I
1: did some other stuff. Yeah.
0: And you wanted to start building. You you feel like you have had a, your takeaways from this, and you maybe this life isn't for you. What was that first foray um, branching off after that look like?
1: Well, I didn't. I wasn't sure if, if I wanted to be a CEO, but um, I I became more of a I'd say activist investor than anything else i i was more interested in trying to change the trajectory of a company uh, of an existing business because of my my feeling that they were doing things wrong okay or they were not running correctly or they were inefficient or they were they were heavy on expense or you know they they were operationally unsound or they were Uh, Their go-to-market strategies, they were missing the mark. And they had resources, they just weren't thinking about it correctly. So I got involved in several different situations like that and had impact there. Um, And then I kind of chilled out for a while and I I did okay in a couple of things. And so I took a break and then came back and, you know, I, I got in the hedge fund business and started doing, you know, a lot of pipe transactions and which is private equity and or private investment, in pub, or private investment, in public equity, and did a lot of that and built an interesting fund for a while. And then I retired at 42, came to um, Arizona.
0: Um, so you were still in New York for that time, right?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I was bouncing around,
0: but that was my home. So 42, retire.
1: Moved to Scottsdale.
0: Which is a great place to be where you guys are currently. Something tells me that someone like you doesn't sit around and enjoy the typical mindset of retirement. Like it's, I get to do something else now.
1: Yeah, I was, it was a reset for me. Um, it was a hard reset for me. You know, the, the capital markets in, in 08, I mean, I, I left the city before the world blew up. And I, I just, it, they changed the game. And it's, you know, it became a game that was no longer fun to play. It was a check the box game. You know, if you didn't fit in a box, you had to check a box, and I'm not a check the box guy. So I, that wasn't really fitting my eye. But it was really more about reinventing, you know, myself a little bit and figuring out, you know, what the next act was going to be. And
0: why Scottsdale?
1: I have family here. Uh, my sister and my brother were here, and and I've been here, and I just loved it. And it was a growing market, and I just liked the lifestyle. It was quiet. And after being in the city and working 20 hours a day for you know almost 20 years, it was. Um, it was a, it was a night, nice break. I, <laughs> I, I needed to, I needed to sleep for about six months.
0: So you're there for a bit. You're, re- you rested, relaxed. When does that itch to do something next? Start. start I lasted about around? a year. Okay.
1: <laughs> I lasted about a year. Uh, I just started poking my head up. I, I realized that I wanted to build something, mm-hmm. uh, and I wanted to build something substantial. Um, but I, I didn't want to, you know, just bring another you know brand of vanilla to the market. I wanted to do something that was going to be disruptive. And yep. I, that word is used entirely too much in my opinion. But, you know, to me, disruptive is, you know, the automobile, indoor plumbing, electricity, you know, airplane, internet, cell phones, things that change the way we live as human beings and change our, our complete, our, the way we operate as human beings in our nature. Um, but I wanted to do something that was going to, create jobs for people. And I wanted to build something that was going to take an industry that was either underserved or not served properly, or in some cases not served at all because of either stigma or, you know, fill in the blank yep. um, or fear or risk or, you know, whatever it was and find a way to solve a problem and create a product. And um, that's kind of what drove me to cannabis.
0: What did that initial search look like for you?
1: I was looking. I was looking for something that was interesting. And I kicked some tires and didn't find anything that really caught my eye. And then literally like seven years ago, a couple of buddies of mine from the city called me and they're like, you know, hey, man, you need to take a look at cannabis. And I'm like, What? Um, was
0: this like your first real exposure to this as a business opportunity i
1: i I told him i wasn't interested i said i don't smoke pot you know and i just it didn't it didn't resonate with me and they they stayed on me for about a month or two and i found they're like look we just need you to go to denver and take a look at this company they had they were involved in uh, which I'm now the majority shareholder and the chairman of the board, but um, it was uh, they wanted me to write a check and put money into the company, which was fine. I was you know, I was I said look I'll go. They wanted me to look at it and, and evaluate it and you know and I said sure I'll go. So I flew out to Denver and uh, they were launching a company out there and I was sitting at the table they were having lunch and they were talking about how people were you know, paying for everything with bags of cash and i just said you know being what? completely obtuse <laughs> to the situation I yeah, yeah. Like, why are you doing that yeah <laughs> and they're like and they all kind of looked at me like i was you know I had three heads and they were like well, what do you mean i'm like well why are you paying for things in with bags of cash
0: literal bags of cash literally literal
1: bags of, of cash and i'm like you know they're like well you can't get the money into the banking system and i went what and then I started to, I'm like, well, how do you pay for things? You're like, well, everything's cash. And then all the lights went off in my head.
0: Yeah. That, 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 that was, was your aha moment. That, that was, was my aha
1: moment. And I, yeah. and I literally, my president, chief operating officer, Michael, and he's been with me in other things for years. And is, he, he is the smartest guy in the room. Uh, <laughs> I called him up and I said, hey, man, I got an idea. And, I'm, and he's like, oh, okay, what are we doing now? And I said, I want to build a fintech reg tech payments company and I want to sell into the banking channel and I want to convince them to bank a federally legal business. And he goes, are you smoking hot right now? (laughs) And I said, what do you mean? He goes, we, that's what, no one's ever done that. I said, I know.
0: That's That's why we want to do this.
1: So we're going to do it. And that's where the conversation began and I incorporated hyper, uh, It'll be seven years March next year.
0: Okay. Wow. That's a, that's a bold moment right there. Were you like, was that percolating for a bit right there? Or was it like, were you at that lunch and you're just like, you're just starting to see.
1: Boom. It just went off in my head. No, it just, it hit me and I was like, "Uh uh-huh. Okay. And then of course it's, it's, it always is everything. It evolves and it's evolved into, you know, a much more significant, company than just that, but that's where it began. And, you know, that, that was a solving a problem. And we, we, you know, we, we have since stood up at 25 financial institutions in the United States. We're the only company that's ever done it. We solved banking and and payments in cannabis, and we're getting ready to do some things here that are going to be um, very, very interesting here over the next, the next 90 days.
0: Okay. Well, I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're here for that. I want to dig into this a little bit further because one of the early things I learned about getting into this industry was that it is not illegal to bank for cannabis, for legal cannabis businesses. That's right. Contrary to popular belief. Contrary to popular belief. And there's a lot of rules that go into it. And frankly, a lot of organizations just don't want to touch it. Because, you know, how much money can we make from this versus the larger risk?
1: Look, it's a nascent industry, it's compliance heavy, and it's a business line, right? I mean, it's like it's like guns and ammo, or it's like money service businesses, or it's like, you know, any other business that's compliance heavy. Um, you, you have to understand what the issues are. And then you have to be prepared to make it a business model. And what's happened now is that, you know, the the, the credit unions and community banks, the smaller ones, are you know are looking for profit centers and they're looking for um, income that is not interest interest or that is not uh, non interest free income. And so they you know they need to drive revenue to their institutions. And, you know, in the early days of this, you could charge $1,000, $2,000, $5,000 a month for an account, which is absurd, but that's what they were doing. It's not a sustainable business model. We told many of them it wasn't sustainable, but they're banks and they're always right, so just ask them. Um, but we were, our objective was to build a sustainable platform to enable them to do it. And as I said, we stood up 25 of them
0: how do you build the foundations of a strong company that is going to evolve over time within the space?
1: You ask a lot of
0: questions.
1: (laughs) I mean, i would be frank with you. We, we didn't know all the answers. We didn't know any of the answers. We knew, we knew what we wanted to do. And we got, you know, we, we sat down with the FDIC and we sat down with institutions and we said, look, you know, what do you guys need? What do you want? What will enable you to feel comfortable with this? And, we did that for about six months. And what we found, found was is that nobody knew the answer to the question. Um, is that, you know, they were just like, oh, we don't know. You know, the cold memorandum was, you know, some guidance, but really nothing. Um, and so we just, you know, we just, we dug under, we just got under the hood and we start figuring it out. And we, and we, I remember sitting with my team one day and we were small, we were like four or five of us, I think. And I said, you know, guys, we're going to stop asking and we're going to start telling them. I dig it. Uh, we're going to not, we're going to stop asking them what to do. And we're going to start telling them how to do it. And Cause they
0: don't obviously have the rule book. So you can they didn't help know the answers. That.
1: And so we had to become, we had to become the thought leader in the space. And the only way to do that was to become the thought leader in the space. So what we learned through our conversations with the, the regulatory bodies and everyone else is it was really come, it came down to two or three really cr- critical ideas or critical data points, which was one chain of cash custody. How does the money move? Two, know your customer's customer. I need to know who you are. I need to know who the merchant is. I need to know where the money where the money originated from, where the money is now, where the money is going. Which is still chain of cash custody. Yeah. All right. And three, um, it is, it's is is the BSA and the AML criteria. All right, the Bank Secrecy Act and the Anti Money Laundering Act. How do we address the data extrapolation to provide those forms and the formulations for those forms? Yep. How do we do a data extrapolation and make sure that when the regulator walks in and says, "Okay, Bob, banker, uh, th- Thursday at three o'clock, uh, this dispensary sold, you know, three hundred dollars of this product," and we want to know? Who the consumer was, we want to know where the did the product come in legally or illegally, and so you know there were all these data points that you had to check. Well, I mean, you're talking about a mass monster undertaking.
0: Yeah, that's a tremendous amount of data to even get that in before they come. Well,
1: we started to distill it down and build software that would start checking those boxes, and then you know, look, we were. we were a brand new software company selling into banks and had never had a bank run our software. Do you want to talk about a sales cycle? <laughs> um, can you say, you know, 35 years of sales cycle? I'm being facetious, but Ooh. our first sales cycle was 18 months. But what, cause you know, every bank wants a reference. Nobody wants to be first. Well, we found one. Okay.
0: After and, how many doors were knocked on there?
1: Oh, a hundred, um, 200. <laughs> um, we found one that would do it.
0: I'm assuming and that was in Denver, right? It was. Yeah.
1: And, um, we started building in real time. Okay. I mean, we were literally developing product in real time and we were learning on the job.
0: Were they an alpha partner being like, listen, you guys let's evolve together as far as this goes.
1: Uh, yeah, I'd say they were probably even <laughs> alpha partner might be even too late. Um, yeah, they were certainly an alpha partner. They uh, look, They they wanted to become a dominant player. They were a very small FI. Um, they didn't have the, the resources or bandwidth to do the things they wanted to do. Mm. Um, and but you know, look, we we did a lot of great things together, and we learned a lot together. And they really, you know, helped. They opened our eyes to more importantly what not to do.
0: What were some of those? Well, actually, yeah. I mean, not to dev on that too long, but what were some of those 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 misses that you guys had while you were were deving this out? Well,
1: I mean, it's you know, one thing you learn with the regulatory bodies is too much information is still too much information. Because if you're if you're pulling a lot of data, you better have a reason for it. Because with financial institutions, you're dealing with personal information, and you're dealing you know with business information. So when you start providing you know reams of data to regulatory bodies, the first thing they're going to do is, okay, what are you going to do with that?
0: You can't just start sending them phone books and being like, what is all the point of this?
1: Right. And so we were like, okay, so we need to just build this. I mean, we went through, I don't know how many iterations. I mean, we're on, you know, version 14.2 or 14.4 at this point. I mean, it's been a, you know, but fundamentally we got critical mass Two and a half years ago, and we stood up fifteen institutions in a year.
0: Okay, so you finally bucks. hit that point. Was that like a slow go? Was it that one?
1: Oh man, it was a it was a grind. Charter because, bank
0: for for a while, and maybe a few others.
1: Well, I mean, you know, we were dealing with very small FIs, and then we landed a you know a billion dollar bank, which for us was a you know that was a big deal for us as a threshold. Yep. And then we landed you know, our largest FIs of. Twelve and a half billion dollar FI, so they're still not big banks, but you know they're they're real banks and gotcha. they uh, they run their programs. And now we're kind of distilling that down, and we're getting rid of a, a lot of those um, institutions because this is going to become a national platform now. Yep. So, you know, we're going to use half a dozen uh, banks that are completely buttoned up and do it by the numbers, and mm-hmm. then they're going to take on the majority of the cannabis accounts and
0: and across the united states gotcha so you're you're as you've grown and matured you can focus on those larger institutions that have the sophistication to be able to to roll this out
1: sophistication and footprint i mean it's all about footprint you've got you're still dealing in cash it's still you know still predominantly a cash industry even though we provide you know payment products and you know we run in several hundred locations around the united states um it's still, you know, 80% of it, 90% of it's still cash.
0: So you need uh, you need a close place to drop off the, uh, uh, for, the uh, for the armored truck to come by and then pick well, up. Well, I
1: those. own the armored truck service too, yeah, yeah. so that helps.
0: Yeah, that's actually one thing I wanted to, I want to get a lot more deep into this, but I did see in, in 2018, was it the the Blue Line Protection Group. Mm-hmm. So could you delve us a little bit more, uh, go in a little bit more about that?
1: Well, there are many breaks. Yep. I mean, if you want to view them, I mean, there's there's no magic to them. I mean, yep. you know, they they process we process by the end of this year, we'll be processing 200 million a month, 250 million dollars a month. Wow. So we'll we'll process probably four billion next year, mm-hmm. um, maybe five, um, and we're about ready to grow that business exponentially. So. And it's a public company and I can't get into you know, many details about it,
0: but understood, uh, there's understood, a, but
1: there's a, there's an interesting growth uh, opportunity coming and it's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting ride for them. And
0: that definitely goes hand in glove with, with the, the payment services it does. Uh, with that. So, you know, we have n- many different listeners to the podcast, you know, the biggest issue just from a, a lower level is that the bigger banks, the card brands can't, Touch this. You can't do Visa, Mastercard, MX transactions at um, at, a, at a federally illegal place. And uh, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are out there that are trying to solve this in different way. Whether it's a, you're buying a gift card, or you're buying a virtual gift card, or you're buying a crypto product um, that's in the medium with that. What? why is your solution in the way that you guys are building this better than others
1: well it's it's not so much about better it's just about sustainability Um, our program runs on domestic u.s banks we are underwritten by domestic u.s banks so the banks know who we are and what we do so there is no fear of them walking in and shutting your program down
0: which has been a big issue in this space.
1: Well, and look, look, operators business people are always going to try to find a solution to a problem. Yeah. And I, I you know, I, I applaud the the creative thinking. Yeah. I, I really do. Yeah. Um you know, the challenge is, is that there is the, the only sustainable solution that is truly sustainable is what we do now there are you know, many groups. I mean, you've got the the big thing now is that everyone's doing the you know the, the script machines, the reverse ATM machines. Well, that's not long for this world. I mean, the guy who operates the company knows it's not long for this world because he said it out loud. So he's like, look, I don't really care when they shut me down. I've made so much money at this point; it doesn't really matter. So
0: yep. I think he move on to do the next thing.
1: And you know, but that's not. <laughs> I call, it stepping, I call it stepping over dollars, picking up pennies. Yeah. Um, you know, the problem is you hurt a lot of people in the process. You hurt the operators, you hurt the businesses, and they don't care because to them, they've made their money and they're moving on. We are not in that business. So as I mentioned, the next 90 days for us is going to be a very interesting time. Uh, we're going to be rolling out some programs that will be, will become the, the standard in the space. Um, and it will... It will negate the need for any quick fixes or workarounds it's going to change fundamentally how things are done here in in the cannabis space
0: you know just from a user perspective and from also a banking perspective right now your business model is you sell the you know you have your your charter banks use the compliance tracking software from a user perspective um you know if i'm a consumer and i'm going in to a dispensary um, and you have great examples on the website, but real quick, just what does that look like for me as a, as a consumer walking into a dispensary and they've partnered with Hyper or if it's a website or a delivery service, because you do partner with the whole gamut of the ecosystems and how people can touch mm-hmm. um, these products. What does, that, what does that look like from just a, a quick level?
1: Well, if you're a consumer, you would sign in. You, would, you're Hyper, you can download the Hyper app at, at, the, at uh, Apple Store or the, or the Google Store. So with get the app, it attaches directly to your checking account. Um, and we're announcing some interesting uh, things we're doing there here in, probably in about two weeks. Okay. Uh, we've ex- significantly expanded our footprint. Um, we're now in 98% of the banks. So 98% of the FIs in the United States, we can, you we can, get, we can, we can get to them. Um, you walk in, you check in, as soon as you check in, we know you're there. You geofence the whole network. You go to your, pick your product, go to the counter. The bud tender will say cash or hyper. You say hyper. They run it just like a Visa match card transaction. They, they, there's a keypad on the counter. You put in a four-digit pack number. Transaction's done. You walk out. Very clean, very, very clean, very efficient.
0: Similar process for online, similar process for, for, for delivery apps as well. well.
1: With, our, with our cashless and our frictionless product, we send you a text message. You hit the text. Put in your four-digit pack number, and that way you don't have to interface with the driver or anyone. So we've removed all of the touch all the touch points. It's, it's our touchless product, so it's it's very clean, very efficient.
0: Definitely accelerated by COVID, but something something that could well we
1: have been we have anyway. almost seventy-five thousand consumers running our app. So you know we have a few, um, <clears throat> and we're going to have you know we'll be way north of a hundred by the end of this year, and then. As I said, when we roll out this new package, it's, uh, it's going to be very clean, very seamless. It's going to go back to my roots as a one-stop shop program. Let's just put it that way.
0: Well, looking forward to that. Um, and I, the last question on, 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 on this is the big thing within this industry, the big talk is, is for the Safe Banking Act.
1: There's no, there's just no, there's no teeth in that. It, has, it, has, it does absolutely nothing.
0: Can you dig into that? Because I'd, to, to, I'd love to get a little bit more. Um...
1: Well, it doesn't say anything. I mean, if you read it, it just doesn't say anything. Uh, frankly, it can create more challenges for the banks than less challenges. So there's just no teeth in it. And Look, there's not a banking problem in cannabis. Contrary to popular belief, 95% of this industry is banked. If you're not banked, there's probably a reason for that. All right. So the, the, the fallacy, the, you know, the, the, the talking points that there's this huge banking problem in cannabis is ridiculous because it's not true. It's just completely not true. So, I mean, I know because we're banking a lot of it. So and we know we know every FI on the market and every major market in California has challenges because it's California. But the major operators in California all have accounts. They're all able to move cash. If you're a fringe player, you're probably going to have some challenges because the enhanced due diligence process that you're going to go through, whether it's our bank or any bank, is going to be arduous. And it's yep. going to be very difficult. And if you can't answer the questions, they can't open the account. So if you're not banked in this industry, it's probably because you can't get banked in this industry.
0: So as you see it, though, like that, that passing doesn't change anything for you. Doesn't
1: change anything. Look, the banks that are in it are in it. Look, the big white shoe banks are never going to touch it. They don't touch anything high risk. They're de-risking. They're not putting more risk on the balance sheet. One, two, it's a fifty to billion dollar market. It's a rounding error for these guys. It's not a big enough industry for to get anybody interested. So your regional banks and your large community banks will always be the banks that step into the, in, into the business. But your white shoe banks are never going to touch it. And if they do, you know, we'll be long gone and it won't matter. So but I just don't see
0: to when this industry becomes a
1: when it normalizes and becomes like alcohol. Yeah. But you know, there are still big banks that won't bank alcohol companies, all right? So, I mean, it's it's just it's banking.
0: So you guys you guys have the tech, you guys have your players that you're you're working with and you don't see those regulatory changes or government changes as as an issue for you guys. Look,
1: w- with with the new product we're rolling out, we'll be sitting on 3,000 counters in the next 14 months.
0: That's fantastic.
1: So it doesn't matter at that point.
0: The biggest thing for you is opening up new states as, as, as those regulations change.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. if they if Visa MasterCard decides they want to play in 18 months, I'm already underwritten for Visa MasterCard. All of my banks are requiring banks. So all I have to do is flip a switch and every single one of my merchants overnight has Visa MasterCard. <laughs> so it doesn't, doesn't change us at all.
0: That's fantastic. Um, well, Christopher, I, I super appreciate your time on this. This has been a great journey from from your background through through everything and creating Hyper. Um, one area that we didn't touch on, and I do want to touch on rather quickly before I get to some of the closing questions, is you are a founder, and managing director of Hyper Ventures and, and Hyper Ventures 2. Yeah. Uh, could you give us a, a quick summary of what that looks like?
1: Uh, Hyper Ventures 1 was a a foray into trying to understand how to price the market and invest in the market. Uh, It was mostly our own money, and we had a few partners. Uh, We had 1.9 portfolio companies. We have five left. Hyper uh, Ventures 2 was a fund that uh, we were going to launch, and we have launched, but frankly, I... (laughs) I had to pick a, you know, as the old saying is you can't ride two horses with one ass. as one of my friends used to say, um, so I had to pick a horse and hyper became the horse. So I basically just parked hyperventures too, for right now.
0: Gotcha. So you weren't going to do a, a Jack Dorsey thing and, and try to, or an Elon Musk thing and try to run everything. Just focus on, focus on. Yeah, your no, I, horse. well, we,
1: We've got, we've got an opportunity to do something really strong here. So I'm going to stay focused on this and like, I, Finance, corporate finance, running funds and investing capital is what I've done my whole life. So it's not it's not real challenging for me to do that. It's it's more mundane than it is anything. Uh, This I love and I enjoy and it's a lot of fun and I have a lot of great people that work with me. So that's that's this is what I love to
0: do. Yeah. You've, you've, you've found what makes you happy. So I appreciate you touching on that. I don't want to end our interview without, without touching on those. So um, I have a few quick closing questions for you. Some are open, some are closed, take what you will. Um, question number one is what do you need from the universe right now?
1: Oh, more good people. <laughs> it's just, you know, um, it's, it's, it's such a challenge to build anything of size and scale without great talent. Mm -hmm. Uh, it takes great talent and it's just, you know, if I could find more great people, uh, would the universe could bless me with that. I would be a very happy man.
0: Okay. Well, any uh, if anybody's listening who's looking for employment, what are your uh, what are your current hot needs as of uh, September 2020? <laughs>
1: uh, you know, I'm looking everywhere for everybody all the time. I mean, we're in the talent business. I'm in the talent business. I'm in the smart people business. So, I want to collect as many smart people as I can. I like it. Surround myself with a lot of really smart people. I'm not that smart, so I need all the help I can get. So, I need, you know, that's what the universe can bring us is more great people.
0: Take it. Uh, what are cannabis or, or non-cannabis founders that have inspired you? Maybe uh, one or two names of people that you've, you've looked up to as, as founders throughout the, uh, throughout the years.
1: I don't want, want you to take this the wrong way, but I, I don't really admire people like that. Okay. Um, I Look, we're humans. We're all fallible. None of us are impervious to mistakes or doing things badly or wrong. Mm -hmm. um I, i think i've taken a lot from a lot of people okay i've learned i really follow how people do things badly and how they make mistakes okay um management styles are every company has its own culture has its own personality its own ecosystem no one company is the same as the next so you can't apply other people's standards or methods to the environment that you're in. You can learn from them. You can listen to maybe see some of the things they did or didn't do. But I don't really admire people or put them on
0: pedestals. Nobody idolized for you. No.
1: Okay. Actually, I'll say one person I do like a lot is Elon Musk. I love the way he thinks. He's, in my opinion, he's our generation's Howard Hughes. Uh, I think he's a a genius. He's brilliant.
0: What about, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like just from the reference that you said, that he's just such a... leaps and bounds ahead forward thinker
1: i think i think elon is a genius i just think he is a uh, i think he's a visionary he's a -a once-in-a-lifetime talent i think he just sees the world in a whole different way than anybody else and as i said i think he's our generation's Howard hughes
0: are there any cannabis business ideas that you're seeing right now that you just literally don't have time to start that you're like this is such a glaring problem if I had more time, if I could clone myself and attack that, I would do this. And I'm sure that's the Hyper ventures too. But
1: um, yeah, but I'm not going to tell
0: you what that is. So. God, I didn't think.
1: <laughs> you never know. You hey, it's never, okay. It never hurts to ask. That's uh
0: <laughs> Some people do. Um, and I, my last closing question, and again, Christopher, just appreciate you sharing your founder's journey with us today. Is how could people connect with you and Hyper um, if they want to learn more or, or do some business with you?
1: Well, I mean, hyper.com,
0: um, that's why
1: H Y P U -U R.com. Um, you know, Tyler Berline, who's my chief revenue officer is a well is a known commodity in this market. Um, you can reach out to Tyler or, you know, Todd Fuller, my president of sales. Uh, if you want, if you're looking to do marketing ventures or strong branding ideas, you can reach out to uh, margaret johnson or uh, excuse me martha johnson mj who's my chief marketing officer and she's amazing so you know we're we're in business to do business so if there's an opportunity uh, that avails itself to us we certainly take a look at everything
0: excellent well christopher good luck with the next 90 days i'm, I'm really excited to, to hear what you guys have been doing i've been following you guys for a bit thank you for sharing your founder's journey with us today with hyper
1: my pleasure thank you for having us
0: thank you for listening to lit up a founder's journey a Lit Up Media production. I'm your host, Brian Weber. This episode was produced by Anthony Morgola, edited by Brian Weber and Anthony Margola, theme music by Justin Cruz of Cruz Control Music. Links from today's episodes are available in our show notes. If you received any value from our show, please take a second and leave a review in iTunes and share with your friends and colleagues. It really helps. You can connect with us on our website, litupfounders.com, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Lit Up Founders and on LinkedIn at Litup Media. Finally, our email address is feedback at litupmedia.com. Thanks for listening and sharing the journey.